Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, the regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dolwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this episode, we're delving back into our bag of listener suggestions from our listeners. But before we get into all that suggestive stuff, what is going on? Well, from what I hear and what I read of the title, there's been some kind of Italian job homage going on over at <laughs> Ain't Slayed Nobody. So this is a scenario that I ran recently for a crossover between Ain't Slayed Nobody and Pretending to Be People. I think the first episode is due to go out a week before this episode drops. So you may have two of them to listen to. This is going to be a six-episode arc that is... What's the right way of putting it? Sheer fucking chaos. Yeah, I think that's the right way of putting it. If you've ever listened to Pretending to Be People, you know the particular brand of chaos that they bring to their games. And Ain't Slayed Nobody aren't exactly slouches on that front either, so this was Cuppy Cap and Runa from Ain't Slayed, and Luke and Zack from Pretending to Be People. This was a hell of a game. It's Pop Cthulhu, it's something original that I wrote just for this recording session, and I'm pretty damn pleased with the way it came out, so I hope you are as well. And speaking of games that I've run for actual plays, there's another one which should be going out around this time, or maybe out at this stage, which is an improv that I ran for Grizzly Peaks Radio actually about a year ago, but because of the production queue for Grizzly Peaks, it's taken a year to come out. And it's a gothic horror improv that I ran that again went in some well i was about to say unexpected directions but it's an improv so of course it goes into unexpected directions pretty much by definition but yeah i it was a very very strange game and i I think it should be quite a lot of fun to listen to and so i'll put links to both of those in the show notes i hear there's stuff been happening over at paul's end regarding an interview recently yes Yeah, so a few weeks back, I was interviewed by Justin and Dan on the Tabletop and Beyond show on YouTube. We talked about adding fear into RPGs. We'll put the link in the show notes on blasphemoustomes.com. And also, season one of Mason and Fricker's Eldritch Stories podcast is now complete with 12 short stories out. Keep an eye on eldritchstories.com for season two later in the year. And we are delighted to announce that the next Weekend with Good Friends will take place this spring 2024. This is, of course, the gaming convention, the online gaming convention, organised by our lovely listeners, that takes place on the Good Friends Discord server. Important dates to bear in mind are the start of the GM sign-ups, so this is if you'd like to offer a game, You can do so between the 25th of January and the 8th of February. Once all those are in, the convention organisers will put together a convention book with all the details, and player sign-ups will take place between the 15th of February and the 22nd of February. We're all very excited about the next con, and we would absolutely love to see you there. 
And now on to our main topic, the ghost of listener suggestions. So back in November 2022, that's such a long time ago now, we asked our listeners via Discord and Twitter, what, or X formerly known as Twitter, what topics they'd like to hear us discuss. We spent episodes 255, 259 and 268 going through some of those, and we still have a number left. While the suggestions are excellent, not all of them would fill a full episode. We're taking the approach of going through them on air, answering those we can address quickly, and picking out others for longer discussions later. Once again, thank you very much to everyone who responded. Well, let's start off then with one that was suggested to us by our old friend James Mullen. What about Nope from the viewpoint of cosmic or unknowable horror? I would need to watch the film to have any kind of response here. Oh, you not seen it, Matt? As per the title, Nope. Yeah, it's not a great title, but yeah. But yeah, I think it's a pretty damn good film. This was Jordan Peele's third directorial effort. Get Out, I think, is rightly recognised as a modern classic. Us, I don't dislike it, but I found it quite a difficult film to get into. It takes allegory to such a length that it it makes it very difficult, I think, to accept the surface meaning on it. I mean, it's it's just such a an improbable setup that while it's a very strong piece of storytelling, my suspension of disbelief was not suspended. I need to go back and visit that and just see whether I like it anymore the second time round. Mm. But nope, I thought it was a, a real return to form. I absolutely loved that film. It wasn't at all what I was expecting from the setup. And goes to some very strange places. Yeah, I mean, I've been to see all three of these at the cinema, which is pretty unusual for me, I think, to go and see so many films by one director recently at the cinema. So um, I think all three I've been to see with my friend Andy. And I think there was one point in this film where we looked at each other and, and grinned. I think that was when, uh, I mean mild spoiler, when some character getting sucked up into the air and there's like weird sort of rattling and stuff and we kind of <laughs> looked at each other and, and grinned. But I have to say, the film kind of committed the cardinal sin of, for me, just being a bit boring in places. So yeah. I think I'd agree, Scott, with what you said about Get Out as like a modern classic. And I would say that's like 10 out of 10. Us, I really enjoyed, I'd say 8 out of 10. And then Nope, I'd kind of like, yeah, maybe 6 out of 10. There were parts in it, like the thing with the monkey that just sort of felt tacked on for a bit of intrigue and, and shock value. My advice, go back and watch Close Encounters of the Third Kind. <laughs> I guess what I liked about Nope more than anything else was that it was a complete subversion of expectations. Well, sorry, no, not not complete, but it very much subverted expectations. I mean, it's difficult to explain why without getting into spoiler territory, but it presents itself as initially very much a classic UFO abduction film, which is a subgenre that I'm not particularly fond of. I don't dislike it, but I, I think it's one that's been handled quite badly. There have been a lot of mediocre horror films that have used the premise, and I think they've relied on people being able to take the threat or the 
concept of being abducted by UFOs seriously in order to instill some sense of horror, which is something that I just can't do. It's always struck me as being a bit silly, really. And as a result, they've never really worked for me as well as they have for other people. There are exceptions. There's a recent film which I reviewed as part of my October horror movie challenge called No One Will Save You, which I thought was a, a really interesting take on, on the genre and did some very unusual things. But on the whole, a lot of the films that people really like, like um, I said Fire in the Sky, I think is one of the big ones. Oh yeah, back from the 90s, that is. Yeah. Have you seen that, Matt? Don't go to see it before you go into the dentist. No. <laughs> I remember seeing that, yes. Yeah. That one just left me cold because, again, the whole threat of being abducted by aliens just, I don't know, things like ghosts and so on as a, as a horrific threat register in my imagination in a way that aliens don't. Maybe it's because they hook into a lot of the media that I grew up with and the stories that I, I grew up reading. But ghosts have always felt not more real, but more relatable, I guess. And aliens just I don't. It's not that aliens don't work for me in general because i mean for example i love alien i think alien is a, a great film but it's the alien abduction subgenre it's the little gray men and the flying saucers and stuff like that and all the tropes that go with that is just not something that's ever really meant anything to me i can agree with my memories of watching a film more recent than fire in the sky but i think it's called the fourth kind oh yeah 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 i've seen that too it's a uh, mila jovovich film yeah it bored the shit out of me Really, really dull. There's another alien abduction film from 2020, which I saw, which I, I thought had real promise, but then fumbled it at the very end. A film called The Block Island Sound, which, as far as the unknowable alien threat is concerned, yeah, I mean, I think it, it's got a lot of weird elements and subtle background elements that you could absolutely steal for Call of Cthulhu and be very inspirational. But the ending of it, my main complaint with it is one that a lot of people probably won't share, which is that it did a really good job of setting up the reveal at the end. And it put all the pieces in place and it worked perfectly as an allegorical bit of storytelling. And then when it came to the end, they didn't trust the audience. And rather than just letting it play out organically and leaving us to come to our own conclusions, they all but had one of the characters turn to the camera and explain exactly what was going on for the people in the back row who weren't paying attention. And that just undermined the ending of the film for me. It's not that I thought the ending was bad. It's just that I thought it it lacked any punch because it was over-explained. But apart from that, I think it's a really interesting film. Yeah, there is another series on Netflix right now called uh, Encounters, which is a four-part series hmm. uh, about this topic. Each episode looks at a different location or, or series of incidents. There's one in Texas. There's one in Wales as well. Happened in the 70s, I want to say. One in Japan. 
the Wales one was maybe just because it's close to home. I found that that very interesting. Hmm. It's the usual kind of stories, but told from different angles and so on. The best thing I've seen of this, maybe of this ilk, is just called John Was Trying to Contact Aliens. Yeah. It came out in 2020, a documentary about a guy called John Shepard. He was really into um, electronics and, and radios and so on. And he just built this big thing to try and contact aliens. And uh, it's a, a story about him. It's, it's fantastic. That's a true story. <laughs> it wasn't called the Transneptunian Telephonic Communicator, was it? I don't believe so. No, sorry. That's a, a reference to the Star Brothers, Brian Cortemonche's Call of Cthulhu scenario, which has got a very similar premise to it. Mm. But going back to Nope for a moment, I think what Nope does well is it uses a lot of our expectations about the genre to misdirect us, and then the film turns into something really quite different. And I appreciated that. I appreciated the fact that it took what I thought was going to be a very tired old premise and found something genuinely well, maybe not novel, but but different to do with it that made it feel profoundly different from the other films of this ilk that we've discussed. I mean, different, but for me, just a bit dull and a bit incoherent as well as a really? film I found. Yeah, oh, I thought yeah. so. oh, no, no, it all clicked together for me. If I have a complaint about Nope, and this isn't really a complaint... It's that there's so much going on under the surface with it in terms of the cultural influences that go into it that I did not get at all at the time. And it wasn't until I was reading reviews after the event and other people's analyses of it that I understood a lot of the stuff that was drawing upon and why it was there in the film, which if you don't have the, the cultural background to pick up on these things is probably going to pass you by. But I think that's true of just about any work of media. It's just in this case, there was a lot of stuff that, if I'd known, probably would have meant more to me if, when I was watching the film. Sounds like you're saying it doesn't really stand up on its own so well, but if no. you read up around it, it means more. <laughs> I mean, um, it should stand on its own two feet, really. No, I don't accept that at all, because I think any work of media that you engage with has got certain cultural preconceptions that you go to it with. And if you share the same cultural background as the people have made it, then a lot of these things are going to make sense in a way that they don't otherwise. That, to me, is a criticism. It's like saying, oh, I watched this Japanese horror film and I didn't get this aspect of it because, well, I, I'm not Japanese and it didn't make sense. But, you know, it should stand up on its own. Well, it doesn't stand up on its own for me because I don't get that cultural background. It's always worth when you encounter a film like that, trying to read up a bit about it and see what it was that you've missed, perhaps. I'm not entirely sure I'd say that Nope was cosmic horror, though. No. There's definitely alien aspects to it and weird aspects to it but it didn't strike me as as having that unknowable aspect of the cosmic to it i think very much in the end it turns out to be something quite understandable 
A. Pews says, Best Cthulhu Mythos writers slash books outside of Lovecraft himself. Do you want to start us off, Matt? Most of the stuff I've read outside of Lovecraft is from the other two of the big three, so Howard and Clark Ashton Smith. I've dabbled little bits here and there with some short stories I've stumbled across in collections, but there's no real other writers, maybe besides Ramsey Campbell, but even then a lot of that was from his really early years that I could say are writers that I've looked at through a specific lens or with a particular degree of attention to any mythos stuff they've done. It's mainly been the original three. But with all the anthologies that you've dipped into, there must be some stories that have stood out that you could recommend. There are, but I'd have to go back and remind myself which ones they are and who they were written by. Matt mentioned Ramsey Campbell there. We've certainly covered a lot of his early mythos fiction on the podcast, but a more recent thing that I'd recommend is he wrote a trilogy of novels over the last five years or so, I want to say, called The Three Births of Daeloth, which are these linked novels set many decades apart, but with shared characters, that are about occult and the, as the name suggests, this sort of resurrection of the god Daeloth. And it's just a remarkable piece of horror writing. It's quite different in tone from a lot of mythos stuff. It's a much more psychological piece, as Campbell's works tend to be, in that it deals with the relationships of the characters and their perceptions of what's going on and the paranoia and the mental disintegration and so on that they go through as a result of these revelations they encounter. I absolutely adored those books, highly recommend them. Another one of my favourites from about ooh, 40 years ago now is The Ceremonies by T.D. Klein, which is this weird mixture of cosmic horror, gothic horror, folk horror that draws quite heavily upon Arthur Machen, but it's got Lovecraftian elements in it as well. It's a fairly chunky read. It's, I think, something like six or 700 pages long. And it, it's about uh, an English professor who is spending his summer in a small town living on a farm in New Jersey and gets involved with some strange local folk beliefs and this uh, sort of unravelling cosmic conspiracy. And it's, it's just a, a remarkable book. I cannot recommend that one highly enough. Like you said, Matt, you know, we've all read various collections of mythos fiction and as we discussed with the, the Shadow of Innsmouth and its various uh, stories that it spawned, no pun intended, some of them are, are good and some of them are, leave me a bit cold. So on the whole, there's a lot of mythos fiction out there that doesn't really grab me in the same way that there's a lot of horror movies out there that don't really grab me either. I would say generally I read other stuff for my inspiration, but the Lovecraftian or mythos stories that I've enjoyed. I mean, probably the ones that I enjoy 
fall under the broader umbrella. I mean, like Thomas Ligotti, I mean, it's, it's not necessarily writing mythos fiction, hmm. but it's kind of shoulder to shoulder with it, I suppose. He's written a few pieces that are explicitly mythos fiction, but they, they're very much in the minority. Yeah, they are. One that always remains with me from, I think it was New Tales of the Cthulhu Mythos, is uh, The Return of the Loigor by Colin Wilson. Oh, yes. uh, I remember really enjoying that. And that I won't say what it is, but the kind of twist at the end, I, I didn't really see that come in. And yeah, I really enjoyed that. I have to say, I thought that was, that was really good. I think when you get, it's much like scenarios, really, in the hands of a a good writer that, that sort of brings something new to it and does a good job of it, then there's room for loads more new scenarios and loads more new mythos stories. Um, it's just weeding them out is uh, can be tricky. But when it comes to people wanting to sample a wide range of writers, I, I think anthologies are perhaps the best approach. Mm. There are some good mythos novels out there, but I, I think it's fair to say the vast majority of mythos fiction is short stories. And anthologies are a great way to approach those. Are there any particular anthologies that either of you would recommend, ones that you've, you've enjoyed? Matt? I'm drawing a blank because I normally tend to just dip in and out of lots of different ones looking for either ones that focus on a particular subject matter, but I very rarely read whole anthologies from cover to cover. Yeah, it's often the case that we're doing a, a show about something. So we'll go to a collection and like look at the story that's about, I don't know, Azathoth or whatever it might be. And there are some collections that are tailored around a theme like that, particularly the old Chaosium fiction books that were around, you know, you've got the Innsmouth cycle and the Sathogwa cycle and, and, and so on. And they'll, they'll collect together a bunch of works about that theme. They're old books, but like New Tales of the Cthulhu Mythos, mm. uh, I remember there being a lot of good stories in that. And that was pretty consistently of a pretty good standard compared to some of the other collections I've read. So yeah, I'd, I'd it's an old collection, but I'd, I'd recommend that one. Yeah, New Tales of the Cthulhu Mythos was a revelation to me because when I'd started reading Lovecraftian fiction back in my late teens, I began with Lovecraft and then I'd read Tales of the Cthulhu Mythos, the Derlith edited anthology. Yeah. And there was some good stuff in there, but a lot of it felt like rehashes of Lovecraft. And then I picked up New Tales of the Cthulhu Mythos, which hadn't been out for too long at that stage, which was edited by Ramsey Campbell and was dealing with a, a new generation of Lovecraftian writers. And this was late 70s, early 80s, so it feels quite dated now. But at the time, it was quite, I guess, maybe even shocking to see this style of, of writing which I'd associated with the 1920s and 30s with the pulp era and the, the literary style that went with that and the restrictions on the things that could be set in a story and, and everything like that brought up to what was then the modern day and with a very different series of concerns mm. and perhaps more explicit sex and violence, certainly punchier language. It was quite eye-opening to see that, oh, hang on, yeah, the Cthulhu mythos doesn't have to be this 
hidebound thing. It doesn't just have to be people trying to write like Lovecraft. Yeah, I think that, that was a big thing. It's, it's like getting away from those people trying to emulate Lovecraft. And as you said, it brings it up to the modern day in the 1980s. Modern day 1980s, the most terrifying of all decades. <laughs> but that's something that I'd say has continued very much since then. Mm. The people have kept the Cthulhu mythos alive and mutating and using it to address more modern concerns and, and showing the mythos from different cultural perspectives. That to me is really exciting. There are certainly some modern anthologies which I'd, I'd recommend just as glimpses into the larger mythos. If you're looking to try to find new mythos writers, people whose work you like, then I think there is no better way than sampling a wide variety of writers in anthologies. And the Black Wings series that S.G. Joshi edited, I think is particularly good. I've only read the first three of them. I think there's five now. Yeah, there's loads of those now. Yeah. The six. I've got them all in hardback on my shelf, the six. Are there any particular stories you'd recommend from Matt? If I'd looked at them. <laughs> those hardbacks <laughs> cost me a lot of money to get. I'm not going to go looking through them when I can buy a paperback and then start flicking through it. Okay. Um... I think we failed to mention something about New Tales of Cthulhu Mythos, if I can just go back to that. The Grafton edition, the cover, is oh, something God, yes. to behold. Quite sanity blasting. And uh, is not a cover you'd see on a, if it were published today. It's a, a shot into uh, a bedroom. And there's in the foreground, there's this kind of purple, little kind of ghoulish, gribbly <laughs> monster running, <laughs> running away, which is kind of strange. And in the background, but highlighted, you've got this woman stood there in her underwear, kind of with her hands up to her face in shock. But like the monster is running away from her. I don't really get it. She's there in her like stockings and suspenders. It's kind of like, I don't know, this is a really weird book cover. <laughs> yeah. A product of the time, I think we have to say. Fortunately. But I don't think it's entirely inappropriate for the kind of book it is at the same time. Yes, you're right, it's not something you see now. But I think there was this time during the 1970s and 80s where there was more interest in horror fiction in, in exploring sexual topics, quite often very badly. And I think a lot of 80s pulp fiction is excruciating for that reason. But I think that cover is a reflection, maybe not entirely of New Tales of the Cthulhu Mythos, but certainly no. of the, the concerns of horror fiction of the time. The other books I'd recommend, again, if you're looking at just trying to sample a variety of authors... Unlike the Black Wing series, the two books in the, the Book of Cthulhu series, the Book of Cthulhu and the Book of Cthulhu 2, are a mixture of old and new. So there are some stories that were published not long before those anthologies were put together. And I think, I want to say the Book of Cthulhu came out about 10 years ago, but it may be slightly longer. But they also draw upon some older stories going back to, I think, even the 70s in some cases. And so it gives you quite a wide range. If you're looking to try to identify possible new favourite authors, or at least authors to explore further, the Book of Cthulhu and its sequel and the Black Wing series are probably great places to start. 
And then we got a question from Victor, which ties in with this question. Inspirational books, e.g. The Fisherman, The Laundry File Series, Ted Klein's books, which we just mentioned, Peter Klein books, The Croning, The Only Good Indians, Hungry Moon, etc., etc. Am I right in assuming I'm the only one who's read any of those? I certainly haven't. Are you not read any of The Laundry Files, Matt? Nope. Oh, okay, I'm surprised. So I've certainly read some of The Laundry Files, didn't really, I mean, it, yeah, fine. I mean, it didn't really grab me, I have to say. Uh, just the, the style of it wasn't really for me. But obviously, it was very popular and spawned a role-playing game of its own. Yeah, from Cubicle 7. And it's now sadly out of print. But it's coming back, apparently. Is it? I can't remember who's doing it, whether it is Cubicle 7 themselves which are doing it, but I'm 95% sure that I have seen an announcement that said that it was coming with a new rule set. Mm. Oh, 95% make you roll. If I had some dice handy. <laughs> Personally, I really like the Laundry Files. I read all the books as they came out, which probably helped, because I'm not sure the early books have necessarily aged that well. Not aged badly in terms of there being stuff that would run counter to social mores these days, but I think just aspects of the technology and the geeky bits of it are very much of the time they were written. So it's a difficult series to pin down because it's evolved and changed so much as it's gone on. The early books in particular are this weird mixture of Lovecraftian horror, spy fiction, and very geeky comedy, which creates something utterly unique. That's changed very much as it's gone on. The early books were rooted in 90s internet culture, which is the bit that I don't think has aged particularly well. And so I think going back to those early ones might be a struggle for, for some people now. And also the first, I, I want to say four or five books, were pastiches, almost parodies, of specific spy authors so there were riffs on Len Dayton, Ian Fleming. There was uh, one that was inspired by the Modesty Blaze series. And they're nice literary conceits from that point of view. But again, that may not be for everyone. But after about four or five books, uh, Charles Stross seemed to drift away from that. And the books become perhaps a little less comedic. There's, there's still light-hearted elements or at least sardonic elements in them they also stop pastiching particular genres or subgenres or authors of, of spy fiction and become more cohesive from that point of view but they stick with that mixture of lovecraftian horror and espionage and and just general weirdness and i think they mature into something quite interesting and one of the things I really like about them is that Strauss has managed to avoid what I think a lot of people writing series do, which is just effectively rehashing the same books and the same ideas over and over again. And he's been really good about introducing absolutely catastrophic changes to the the conceit of the books, to the, the background, so that the central characters change, the viewpoint characters change, the very premise changes. He brings in elements out of left field. He builds up towards an apocalypse 
apocalypse and then he lets the fucking apocalypse happen and then you deal with the the, the fallout from that and how it's you know everything is reshaped as a result and yeah I, I think there's some really good and clever writing there well it's about that time let's take a commercial break let's grab a cuppa and we'll be back right after these messages have you visited our Red Bubble store? We have t-shirts, stickers and all sorts of goodies that you or someone you know might like. Check it out. Just click on the merchandise link on our website, blasphemoustomes.com. And as promised, we're back. Those messages have been and gone. And we're here. And we've got more questions from our listeners. Are there any other of the books that Victor mentioned there that you've read, Paul? I mean, I've read some Ted Klein stories. I don't know the others. The others don't mean much to me. Have you got anything to say about the Ted Klein stuff? Well, again, it was in one of those collections that I read about 20 years ago. So, no, I don't really have any particular observations about it, <laughs> I have to say. I'd have to go back and uh, reread them to be able to say much about those. I have trouble remembering what I read last month, let alone uh, something I read 20 years ago. I have trouble remembering what I read last month, but the stuff that I read 40 years ago, I can remember comparatively well. Well, I guess it depends how much it stood out to me at the time. And yeah. uh, I, I guess that kind of says maybe it didn't. Klein is an interesting author, not just for the stuff he's written, but also for his career, because he wrote these two books, or at least put out these two books in the early 80s, which I think are amongst the best mythos fiction that's been published. There is The Ceremonies, which I've mentioned, and then there's Dark Gods, which is this collection of four novellas, which I think were really quite influential on the Call of Cthulhu scenario writers of the 1980s, and particularly perhaps on Delta Green. But... He then pretty much stopped writing fiction. He carried on working as an editor, and he's, I think he's still around and he's still working as an editor, but he's published almost no fiction in the past 40 years. There is a collection, the name of which escapes me, I'll put it in the show notes, that came out recently that collects his other fiction from outside Dark Gods, his short stories. But that's really it. It's like those three books, and he's done, which I think is a real shame because I, he's one of the most talented mythos fiction authors I've encountered. But maybe he just felt that he'd said all he had to say. As far as the other books that Victor mentioned there, you mentioned, Matt, didn't you, that you picked up The Fisherman and you were planning on reading it? It was an idea of mine that I was toying with. It's still on my to-get list. But, but I do have one of those books. I've got Hungry Moon, because that's a Ramsey Campbell book. But yeah, the others, I know that Only Good Indians is a um, Stephen Graham Jones book, but only because you've mentioned it before. And Klein, we've already mentioned, but yeah, the others, no idea. The Fisherman, I think, would be a fantastic book to discuss on the podcast at some stage if you ever read it, Matt, because... It's a great example of how you can do cosmic horror without drawing at all on Lovecraft. And The Croning, which is a Laird Baron novel, is, I'd say, similar in that respect. The Fisherman is especially interesting because it's got a, a fantastic 
narrative structure as well with nested narratives that unfold and link and yeah is is just a fantastic bit of writing the croning is more conventional in its structure but again has got some degree of nested narratives and takes place over a, a long period of time and draws upon lovecraftian elements again without ever name checking or explicitly referencing lovecraft I can see both of those being hugely inspirational books. The other one that he mentions there, Peter Klein, is someone I can imagine you actually really enjoying, Matt. He's an unusual Lovecraftian writer in that, again, he, he very rarely directly references the mythos, but his stuff is more... It's it's like a combination of almost techno-thriller-type stuff. I, I can see some Michael Crichton and his approach. But a very sort of pulpy, I want to say light-hearted, but not really light-hearted. It's, I mean, there are the occasional comedic elements, but it's more that it's a, a light touch and a light literary style. But he has written this series of linked books, uh, starting with a book called 14, that... Uh, Lovecraftian tales of parallel universes bleeding into each other and uh, strange cults drawing upon that and otherworldly entities intruding into our world that take a much more pulp science fiction approach to the whole thing, which I can see if you're ever running a modern-day Pulp Cthulhu campaign particularly uh, could be great inspiration. On to our next question. This one comes from Ryan Finn. Maybe the different types of horror and how to use them effectively. Crawling horror, cheap scares, ugh, and building tension. I've never heard of crawling horror. Yeah, what does he mean by crawling horror? <laughs> uh, does he mean just like a slow build or does he mean like actual things like crawling after you, like creepy crawlies and, and like, I don't know, legless zombies? I took it to mean more a sort of persistent sense of wrongness because I think tension is more to do with building horror whereas that crawling or creeping horror I'd say is more uh, like how in The Shadow of Rinsmouth as it's on all of our minds you have just all those descriptions of Innsmouth and its residents and so on that even from the outset are wrong and we're told in various ways just consistently how repellent and creepy and so on they are and it just becomes like background noise. I was just thinking they called it crawling horror because it hadn't learned how to walk yet to rip off a gag from the adventures of Lil Cthulhu quite a popular cartoon on youtube i know is that kind of plushy cthulhu humor yeah, again these baby plushy cthulhu i remember they, it's, the gag was about they call him the crawling chaos because he hasn't learned to walk yet right okay yeah the cheap scares thing just sort of fired off an idea that we've done various genres of horror but we haven't done like b-movie horror mm. and that's not necessarily what what ryan is is referring to there but that was an idea that it kind of spurred in my mind and uh, the whole B-movie thing I think could be a, I don't know if it's a, I mean, yeah, I think it is a, a thing. Certainly I've sat at the table with some GMs who are steeped in B-movie kind of horror and they bring mm. that to the table and it's a particular style of game. It tends to be a bit 
over the top and at times comedic and at times highly kind of, I don't know, gore-filled or the kind of cheap budget special effects, you know, brought to the table, not literally, but, you know, they're described in that kind of way. So that I think that can be a lot of fun. I mean, that was something that Matt Nixon excelled at. I mean, that's who I'm thinking of, yeah. What was it he used to do? There was a card game, wasn't there, that had B-movie horror elements, and he used that to basically improvise games? He used to use Grave Robbers from Outer Space. It was a card game, just, you know, it wasn't a role-playing game, but it gave you, you know, different cards had, like, could be used as NPCs. They could be used as player characters, as inspiration for. There were other ones that were like monsters, were ghosts, were like Frankenstein, you know, B-movie kind of things. Also items, maybe locations as well. So what he did was uh, he got you to, I think he dealt out a few cards each and they'd be like characters and you'd pick one as your player character. And then I think you got some other ones and you would sort of pick maybe a location and maybe like a threat and some items and things. And then you'd kind of you'd spend about 10 minutes just sort of talking it through and then you'd have a break and he would go to the bar or the, get a coffee or whatever. And you'd have a break for about 10 minutes and then he'd come back with a scenario, you know, a very B-movie script uh, well, not script, but, you know, set up based upon what you would generated. And the character that you picked, you would give to the person on your left. And you'd receive, you know, your player character from the player on your right. Because he was very good at improvising and he was very mm. steeped in kind of B-movie lore. And that was just a great fun game. It was very much a kind of like what we would term indie game, but it was of his own creation. And for him... It worked really well. I played in like several of those and uh, yeah, it was great fun. One time uh, myself and Robin being fans of the 70s bought him the uh, B-movie kind of exploitation set called Bell-Bottomed Badasses of the Mean Streets of Funk. <laughs> yes. Which uh, added a lot to the, to the game, I think. Yeah. If I remember correctly, he used to use Dead of Night as the game mechanics for running the game, didn't he? Yeah, I think so, because that's quite a light mm. system that kind of drives itself with the, the raising threat and so on. And the, the two mesh together very well. Dead of Night is described anyway as the game of B-movie horror, so it's not the, the perfect game for that kind of approach. But when I think of cheap scares, as Ryan put it there, I'm thinking much more of... Those moments where, as a GM particularly, you abandon any attempt to gently creep out the players or introduce those persistent elements of wrongness, build tension and so on, and just go for gore or body horror, just try to freak the players out to some extent. And I perhaps disagree with the assessment of that as being cheap. I think it's a very powerful tool because it can be quite difficult to build tension, particularly in the game, because not everyone is going to take it seriously. And it only takes one person making sarcastic comments on the side to deflate all of that. As far as that that creeping or crawling horror is concerned, yes, you can probably get that to work 
but only if you're hitting the right notes for the players. A lot of that is very subjective. But when it comes to those those shocking moments of, oh, his head explodes or whatever, then those are generally guaranteed ways of getting a reaction, of engaging the players. And yes, I mean, they're obvious, they're easy, but damn, they're effective. Yeah, I think so. And uh, yeah, they work for a reason. They, they mm. work in movies. I mean, maybe they don't work for you, but and what works in a game, not necessarily the same as what works in a movie. But when it comes to building tension, is that something you think we could get a whole episode out of, the techniques to create that sense of, well, the two things he talks about there, that creeping, crawling sense of horror and and ratcheting up the tension. Are those things that we'd have enough to say about or, or is it worth going into them here? My gut reaction is it's something you can pepper in in other episodes, that it's a great way to identify when something does it well and talk about doing it. But to actually talk about it as an individual standalone subject, my gut reaction is probably not. Hmm. Then let's address it here. Are there any particular techniques that you use, Matt, to do either of those things that you can talk about? Again, off the top of my head, not really. It's not something I set out to do deliberately. If the table's more engaged about having a fun time and it's quite a jokey atmosphere, then tension isn't going to work. But if you've got a group that are quite happily buying into the genre, quite happily buying into the environment, the setup that you promoted, then tension just naturally evolves, I find. It's not something that I, I say deliberately set out to do. But are there any particular things you find yourself doing as a GM that assist in creeping the players out or building a sense of wrongness or escalating tension? I suppose the, the way in which you deliver it, just vocally, mm. I will describe something and do it quite matter-of-factly, but with one thing at a time, maybe a slight pause, and then layer something else on, on top of it, and then maybe let that sink in for a little bit, and then layer something else on top of that. And yeah, this kind of list-like approach, but yeah, try to keep things short, keeping it not punchy, but keeping them bite-sized chunks to allow them to be easily digested. How about you, Paul? I mean, tension to me implies like you're stretching something and putting it under tension, right? You put it under pressure, like a pressure cooker. And that's got to slowly build. You can't be in a state of, you know, to use the, the name of the film, high tension. You can't be in a state of high tension all the way through the game. I don't think, you know, it's, it's a peaks and troughs thing. And I think with a, particularly if we're talking about like a one-shot game or even just a, well, no, maybe not a regular session of an ongoing game, but particularly a one-shot game. One technique that I often go for is starting with a very mundane setting, you know, like a if it's a modern day setting, it's just you and your friends sat around in the lounge or whatever, just just chatting. Is if something that people can relate to and get on board with. And there's no tension to start with, perhaps. Then you can let it build. But I think part of tension is buy-in. So people have to buy into the situation in some way and you know invest in their characters and kind of be immersed in in the situation so i think give time at the start to allow people to get into that before you start throwing weirdness at them because mm. sometimes once you start throwing the weirdness at them you know it's a bit like pulling on the fishing rod before the fish has 
taken the hook. You know, you just end up with no fish. So I think if you throw that stuff in too soon, people focus on that stuff and on the plot or on the on the monsters or on the, the investigation or whatever it is, without really focusing on a sense of character and immersion in the game and investment. And I think they need to have that sense of investment and then they get an emotional connection to it. And then they start to care when you slowly start introducing elements of the game that upset that balance, upset that status quo. You know, you can ramp that up as you go through the game. Many ways to do that. I mean, you know, tension, we have dice. That's that every time you roll dice. Well, not every time you roll dice, there's tension. But tension, you know, when you roll the dice, and again, I, I stop people rolling the dice. You know, I, I call for a roll, but I said, don't roll yet. Hmm. Let's just establish what's going to happen if you fail or if you succeed. Because then there's tension. If they just, you just sort of say, oh, can you make a strength roll? And they just roll the dice and then look at you to say, well, what's happened? There's no tension there. But if you say, make the strength roll, oh, wait a minute. Do you manage to shut the door and lock it before the thing starts pushing on it? Okay, well, if you fail, you know, it's going to get an arm around the door and it's probably going to be able to grab you. But if you succeed, you, you've locked the door. Okay, now roll the dice. That's maybe not the greatest example. It's just one off the top of my head. But it's just setting like stakes, you know, setting a goal, as we call it in Call of Cthulhu, for what the role is. And then everybody looks at those dice. And, you know, if, it, if it's a terrible role, everybody, well, maybe laughs or groans or whatever. But there's a sense of tension there. So I think your mechanics can build tension. And your story can build tension. Or in my case, whenever you pick up the dice, you just resign yourself to an inevitable failure. <laughs> no tension when Matt picks yeah. up the dice. It's just disappointment. As far as that thing about establishing the stakes goes, I've been playing public access recently with Jason Cordova, who wrote it. It's going to come out on 8th Slade, nobody, later this year, I think. He does something very neat in that game, and he does it very well as a GM, which is there's a, a particular type of role you make at some points in the game called the night move, which is in really tense life or death situations, you're rolling to see whether the worst possible thing happens. And then he as the GM will say, oh, it's worse than that because. And so in the example that you just gave there, Paul, mm. he'll say, what do you think will happen if you don't lock the door in time? You say, oh, well, obviously the monster's going to push the door open and get into the room with me. And he'll say, well, it's worse than that because it'll get into the room with you and it will slowly tear you limb from limb and you will die. And then you roll to see what that happens. And there is a mechanic within the game that allows you to basically turn failed rolls into a success, but it's always at a personal cost. You have to narrate backstory stuff, and you've got a very limited number of times you can do it, so it's a, a resource you have to be careful with. So you tend to save it for these life-or-death situations. What this means is you tend to get these moments of the game where when you fail a roll like that, 
he is the GM, will gleefully describe the worst thing happening. You know, the monster breaks into the room, he tears you limb from limb, and he'll, he'll go into some detail about that, how that happens. And the end of it is, or you could turn a key and stop that from happening, in which case we rewind time and then we get the better outcome. What's nice about that is you get the horror of seeing the worst thing that can happen, but you get the option of darting it back. And I just think it's a really neat mechanic. Mm. As far as techniques for enhancing both of the things that Ryan's talking about are concerned, with the creeping, crawling sense of horror, I think just ambiguous descriptions help an awful lot there. This is something that I picked up an awful lot from reading Ramsey Campbell. He is an absolute master at this, in that he will describe things from a character's perspective that they are perceiving that may or may not be right. Other characters will just look at them strangely or they'll they'll look into a doorway and they'll just think that there's something there and they'll look again, there's not. And it's just all these little moments of uncertainty where there might be something bad happening, but there's probably not. It's just the character maybe being a bit paranoid or maybe there really is something bad about to happen. And that uncertainty creates tension. It creates a, a corrosive sense of undermining reality. That's something I aspire to do a lot in my own narration as a GM. And the other technique is one that I didn't realise that I did until... Seth Skorkowski pointed it out. In fact, I think he did so in one of his videos. Apparently, I tend to, just at, at key or tense moments, start speaking a lot more quietly. Apparently, that really works because it then perhaps forces the players to pay a bit more attention to if there's been crosstalk or whatever, pull back from that. And... It apparently helps with engagement. Like I say, it's not something I ever realised I did, but when he pointed it out, I started paying a lot more attention to it. And yeah, apparently it works. Yeah, I think moderating your voice as GM is, uh, is, a, is an important thing. I think you know, the pace at which you speak and, mm. and also the questions you ask, you know, you can, you can ask questions of people to say, you know, how do you feel about that? You know, but why is that thing there was it there earlier did you see her before you can just throw questions into the game to make people question what is going on because i think you always have to remember with role-playing games we're only getting what is said at the table there's no like screen where you can look at things and sort of say oh you know i'm seeing that on the tv screen or the you know the cinema screen and we're seeing a big picture in role-playing games it's all just described with words hmm. you're getting very partial descriptions of things really often quite sketchy descriptions and i think this is something that we will probably come back to in our next episode where we talk about psychological horror thank you thank you you're listening to the good friends of jackson elias you can find show notes for this episode at blasphemous where you'll also find all our social media links we have t-shirts and other merchandising available at our Redbubble store. If you're enjoying this show, please consider backing us at patreon.com forward slash good friends of Jackson Elias. Thank you for listening. Well, it is that time once again when we would like to say thank you to people 
First of all, thank you to you for listening to this episode. Thank you to anyone who has ever backed us at any stage. And we have a number of new people to thank by name. Starting off with a thanks to Moro Reese. As always, I'm going to say, if we mess up your names, please let us know and we'll give it another shot. And thank you also to the singular Reefner. And thank you to Jared Brown Rabinowitz. And thanks to Jaron Nichols. Thank you very much to Clifton Whitaker. And thank you finally to Joseph Honold. And if you are enjoying the good friends of Jackson Lies, we would love it if you let people know. Whether this means leaving a review somewhere where reviews can be found, or or just telling people about it in perhaps a, a slightly quieter tone of voice than you might use otherwise, just to make sure they're paying attention. And if you have suggestions for topics for us to, to discuss, then uh, please do send them over to us. Uh, you can find us on Discord, on Twitter, on Blue Sky, on Facebook you know, all the places, or you can contact us through Patreon. I'm sure you know how to get hold of us. And yeah, we've got a big list and we just keep tacking things to the bottom of it. So um, it might be a little while before we get round to yours, but uh, we welcome all suggestions. You've been listening to the good friends of Jackson Elias. Until next time, it's a goodbye from me. Cheerio from me. A farewell from me. Blasphemous Tomes.com mm-hmm.